0: Hello, Vet Walters, and welcome back to another one of our clinical podcasts. This one is from a two-part series that we did with emergency critical care specialist, Dr. Rob Webster, on anaphylaxis. In part one, over on our clinical podcast series, Rob discussed diagnosing anaphylaxis and how to differentiate it from other causes of shock. But In this episode, we talk about treatment, and there are a couple of key concepts in there that we really wanted to share with all of you. If you enjoy this format, if you listen to this and you go, yep, this is a great way to update my skills and knowledge and keep up to date, then I think you will love the Vet Vault Clinical Podcast. It's three episodes per week, one on small animal medicine, one on emergency critical care, and one on small surgery. It's short enough that you can consume it on your drive home or in the time that it takes to do just one load of dishes, so we're talking about 20 to 30 minutes per episode, but they're packed with enough morsels of wisdom from our specialist guests, that you will always learn something new. Each episode is backed by summarized show notes so you can refer back to it at a later date because we all forget stuff from time to time. If you're curious and you want to try it out, go to thevetval.com, just our normal website, to have a listen of a few more samples that we uploaded on there. In particular, go and check out the episode by Prof. Jill Madison from the Royal Vet College about the risks of using antibiotics in young animals. This was a discussion that I knew nothing about and it kind of blew my mind and I feel it's something that we should really all know about. So go and have a listen, share it with your friends and enjoy this episode. Have a great week.
1: You don't give it, you say there's no scientific evidence or whatever and then the client goes to their local practitioner who they trust who says, oh yeah, we'll give them this dose and then miraculously everything clears up yeah. and the emergency vet was, you know, was a bit of a wally. Hi, I'm Hubert. This is Gerardo. I'm Rob Webster. I'm a specialist in emergency and critical care, and I'm an owner and work and practice at the Animal Emergency Service in uh, Brisbane, Australia.
0: And you are listening to the VetValp Clinical Podcast. Well, that brings us to drugs. We'll leave adrenaline for last. Let's go through the other traditional treatments that seem
1: to be falling out of favor. Let's start with the antihistamine any use in that oh you yes you can use that there's probably a and and this may be a time where h2 antagonist could be worthwhile which is ranitidine or famotidine because gastric acid secretion certainly is exacerbated by histamine uh, release because it stimulates release of gastrin so I would certainly consider the use of an antihistamine as, as reducing gastric acid secretion, which could lead to ulcers and also esophagitis if the patient's vomiting. And it can also relieve the puritis. Is it life-saving? No. So it's take it or leave it from me. So I can administer the antihistamine. And if I'm going to choose, I would probably choose chlorpheniramine and if the patient's showing gastrointestinal signs, famotidine, if I don't have famotidine, renididine. but it's a very much an ancillary treatment. The treatments that are the mainstay of stabilization of fluid therapy and a catecholamine. But let's talk glucocorticoids first though. Yeah. Yes, that's the next yeah. one. Let's go with that. Now glucocorticoids, so so neither if we could administer these drugs before uh, the patient was exposed to the, and to the allergen, they, they'd be extremely effective, right? But the problem is we're getting in after the horse is bolted. Now, again, like the um, antihistamine, the glucocorticoids may reduce the puritis. But the other thing they may do, um, in anaphylaxis, it's important to remember that there's not just one mediator involved. You know, what we see is mast cell degranulation which leads immediately to massive histamine release. And that histamine is the primary early response where we get vasodilation, smooth muscle spasms, regardless of the different organs, you know, we get the really profound signs on presentation, mm-hmm. but What also happens at the same time is that membrane phospholipids are broken down, phospholipase A2 is is activated, and we see this breakdown of phospholipid membranes and liberation of arachidonic acid intermediates, the prostaglandins and the leukotrienes, which are really important a bit later on. You know, we see some patients with anaphylaxis that seem to respond very well to initial treatment, mm-hmm. but then remain quite ill for a period of time. And they're the patients where these more delayed mediators are involved, both the breakdown of phospholipids and and release of the prostaglandins and the leukotrienes in the immediate intermediate time frame, so sort of six to eight hours. But then even later than that, we'll also see a cytokine response one of the key side effects is platelet activating factor which can also cause a more prolonged illness because of this allergen exposure and glucocorticoids may by stabilizing phospholipids help prevent that arachidonic acid cascade from getting crazy so 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 maybe worthwhile but let's not administer yeah, you know, we, we, are probably around administering an anti-inflammatory dose rather than any sort of immunosuppressive dose. So we're probably looking at 0.1 mg per kg of DEX would be the dose that I would consider.
0: Okay. So, so to clarify the DEX that you're giving is not going to help for what has happened. That's yeah. not going to save the patient's life for what's happening now, but it may help for what might happen down the line still.
1: Yes. I Absolutely. will also
0: add the, the, the anti-prioritic effect is not negligible from a purely practical perspective because yeah. I, I used to give dex like we all did for, for and I'm talking about the, the bee sting that comes in, maybe had a vomit yeah, a fat face, but it's okay by the time it comes in. So it's not a hospital all night sort of a patient. And I used to give antihistamine and and that was the standard. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I heard that it's not, doesn't really help. So I stopped giving them. And I had so many comebacks where they'd be back oh, a few hours later dude. or the next day. And why do, why are they back in there with the angry client? Because it's itchy. It's fancy. You can't yeah. get
1: sleep. And I'm like, Okay, I'm giving decks again. <laughs> We're, we're in the same boat there and that's exactly what we've seen in our hospitals as well. We went through a wave of saying these things have no value and then owners would come back with still with itchy skin and swollen faces and that. And eventually a veterinarian would, you know, in, in emergency practice, right, you don't give it you say there's no scientific evidence or whatever and then the client goes to their local practitioner who they trust who says, oh, yeah, we'll give them this dose and then miraculously everything clears up yeah. and... Our, the emergency vet was, you know, was a bit of a wally. So I certainly administer that. I guess I'm referring to the patient that I don't know is going to live till the morning. And um I'm not worried about him getting itchy because he was, you know, going to die otherwise. But <laughs> swollen faces, itchy skin, yeah. absolutely.
0: Dead uh, dogs don't itch. <laughs> 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 yeah, from a personal point of view, I, I'm quite sensitive to these things. I'm not dying sensitive, but I get really itchy. And oh, a bread tablet. And within half an hour, I feel he, well. maybe not half an hour, but it definitely makes a big difference for that itch anyways. So that's treatment. So now adrenaline is the, that's the mainstay of our treatment for the very anaphylactic dog. Let's first go back to the less severe ones. If you have that dog with a, that had a vomit, had a bit of a wobble, and now is an itchy face, but it comes in and it's okay. Do you mm-hmm. still go for adrenaline there or, or not necessarily?
1: no i only consider using adrenaline in in patients with significant cardiovascular derangements and if i know it's an anaphylaxis before you know because the owner's been exposed to the um, to an antigen, like they've seen a bee or, or they heard the dog cry out, and then these signs presented, I would certainly consider using epinephrine early. But otherwise, I, I would only use it if indicated. So many of the patients that don't have a, a history of exposure, we would treat with volume alone. But if we're convinced that it is anaphylaxis and we still got volume issues, then I would definitely consider using this a little bit earlier. So it really depends on my index of suspicion as to how seriously affected the patient is, as well as how likely it is to be an anaphylactic reaction.
0: Adrenaline, it's a role in anaphylaxis. So clearly there's the cardiovascular effect that it affects the heart and helps and and vasoconstricts. But I've read other things, again, no no in-depth reading. I've come across words like membrane stabilization and all those sort of things. Does it have other positive effects in anaphylaxis or is it purely cardiovascular support?
1: Cardiovascular support and bronchodilation. The key in human medicine is the bronchodilation because we die of, you know, we asphyxiate with anaphylaxis. And my feeling of treating many patients with anaphylaxis over the years is that actually adrenaline is not as imperative in canine anaphylaxis as it is in people. You know, in, in people, they, you know, you die very, very quickly and the EpiPen is life saving. In canine anaphylaxis, volume replacement seems to be extremely important and fluids alone uh, treat many of the patients that we see with anaphylaxis. So it certainly has a role, but we are usually using it as a slow. IV infusion about you know 0.05 microgram per kilogram per minute, and we certainly see many patients that respond to fluids alone. Okay. So it's not yeah you know it's it's written up as a cornerstone of treatment in all of the texts and the academic writing around anaphylaxis, but I, I don't feel that it's life saving in the way it is with humans, where an epipen meets the difference between life and death.
0: I went to talk probably five years ago on on specifically this sort of beasting reaction. Mm-hmm. And the feeling there was that if there's any systemic signs so vomiting normally, vomiting mm-hmm. or any episode of weakness, even if they present looking okay, that they would still administer just an IM jab of the low-dose adrenaline. Uh, the protocol was ejected and then injected again about 20 minutes later. So I, I had started doing that for anything that... And sometimes they'll come in and they're not dying, but they're still a little bit pale. Like dogs wagging at sale, but it's maybe a bit and the gum color is not fantastic. And with those, the low dose adrenaline IM and within 10 minutes, they pink and they look heaps better. And then those are will and monitor for you know six hours or so. And they tend to just be fine. Is that, does that make any sense? Or is there any, has the thinking changed about it? Or, or? when
1: it, when it was studied, actually giving, you know, giving IV boluses of epinephrine, For treatment of anaphylaxis. The only thing that made a significant difference to the cardiovascular parameters was a CRI. Um, There was a transient improvement when you give an IV bolus, but it's gone back to normal baseline pretty quickly. And and then in in some situations where the hypotension's been going on for a little bit longer, some studies have shown no um, positive benefit at all to adrenaline on, on mean arterial pressure. So I I think the jury's still out Hugh. The only thing with adrenaline is never give it subcutaneously. Um, That's, you know, it's a short acting compound. You know, you're only lasting three to five minutes maximumly. So your IM dose is having a very short uh, duration of effect and, you know, if it makes a measurable difference to the patient, then no troubles at all. But it's not something that I typically administer unless we've got significant cardiovascular signs.
0: Okay, cool. And and, and so how do you give it? So you're reaching for CRIs, is that yeah.
1: right? Reaching for CRI's, uh, what we may do, or what I will sometimes do, is administer a you know 0.01 mg per kg dose IM. If I again that high index of suspicion, if we're rushing to stabilise this patient, get an IV in, and uh, and we're fairly confident that the patient's got anaphylaxis, I may administer IM while I'm stabilising. But typically, what we do is just is, is use a CRI at about 0.5 microgram 0.05 micrograms per kilograms per minute.
0: And and how long does that last? For? How long do you do that for?
1: We'll keep them on that CRI until the patient's cardiovascular um parameters have you know normalized. Again, there's always a risk reward with these things. You know, vasoconstriction is not innocuous, and neither are the cardiac effects of the adrenaline. So so when I'm you know weaning any catecholamine, what I do is generally make sure that we've got resolution of the reason that we put them on there. So this patient with anaphylaxis, I'd expect, you know, normal mean arterial pressure, at least over 60 and resolution of the signs of shock. And then what I would do is halve the dose and keep it on that, keep the patient on that dose for an hour, then halve it again. So usually we'll go for about two hours in any weaning situation, halving the dose and you're giving, you know, essentially nothing at the end of that time. But the idea being that as soon as, if any signs reoccur, you can crank back up again. And I use that kind of rule of thumb as well when I'm managing post-operative hypotensive patients or anything like that, you know, if we've, normalize the reason that we've got them on the catecholamine, halve the dose, see what happens over the next hour. And and I generally will reduce that dose twice by half before I think about discontinuing it.
0: Okay. And while they're on that, at that dose, are you going to see, because I know in the old days with a solid old IM dose or into the heart, like on Fiction*. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, I used to get, do that too. You get a massive tachycardia from the adrenaline. Uh, On that CRI dose, are you seeing a a noticeable Dekikai? Not
1: not a noticeable change in many patients. And really you want to, you know, that's a starting point, Hugh. So if you're sure you've given enough volume and you're still hypotensive you can crank it up. What we see, what I see more, you know, as commonly as tachycardia is uh, bradycardia, depending on the effect on, on actually what's going on with the patient. So if you've got an extremely hypotensive patient and suddenly we cause massive vasoconstriction and increase the blood pressure, you can actually get a rebound bradycardia from adrenaline too. So it's a very variable response depending on the systemic status of the patient. And so what I do is see what you get from what you give and then tailor the drug dependent on that.
0: Well, so there's a very good reason I asked that because one of the clinical parameters for seeing are you treating the shock effectively is normally is is the tachycardia improving? Mm-hmm. So, so I wanted to just double check that if the patient still has tachycardia, don't go, oh, don't worry, it's just the adrenaline. You go, no, actually, it's still in shock. We need to, I need mm. to rethink this.
1: All. You want to go very carefully with the, you know, every one of these patients is an individual and you are going to look at the cardiovascular physical parameters, but also the lactate level and also the mean arterial pressure. And between those things, we should be able to balance The need for pressure and the need for oxygen delivery by not causing too massive a vasoconstriction Uh, and that should you know we're, we're aiming for that mean arterial pressure of better than 60 and a lactate that's trending down or at least halving in the first couple of hours
0: You know those conversations that you have at conferences back in the days when we still had big vet conferences when people are chatting to the lecturers and asking questions and you hear things like this isn't really in the books but here's what I think. It's in those kinds of conversations that the best nuggets of wisdom appear. The nitty-gritty real-life details that you can only get from years and years of experience and it's exactly those kinds of conversations that we try to emulate on the Vet Vault clinical podcasts. We don't want lectures. We want to hear about the challenges, the tips, the stuff ups, the this is how I do it. Go to vvn.supercast.net to join in the conversation.